0: ocean bites out loud is a podcast that brings the latest news in ocean science straight to you our goal is to summarize the most recent scientific articles for your listening pleasure and to talk to up-and-coming ocean scientists who have new and interesting ideas to share with the world we hope you enjoy and learn a little something along the way everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today we have a wonderful scientist with us who I'm very excited to speak to. For our listeners, can you please tell us your name and your pronouns?
1: Yeah, uh, my pronoun is he and my name is Jaime Ojeda.
0: Thank you for joining us today. So, Jaime, what are you currently researching?
1: Uh, currently, my research is to try to understand the relationship between people and nature, but in the field of reciprocity. When people uh, have positive contribution to the nature, at the same time, we recognize and honor the nature contribute to our life in many dimensions. So that's part of my field now.
0: Wow, I think a lot of times we tend to separate that from science, but it really is a big part of science. Can you tell us a little bit more uh, where you're doing this research?
1: Uh, okay. I am doing this research in the, in fisheries. So particularly in indigenous and artisanal fisheries. I have two study cases. One is in Haida to think about what happened with abalone. It's a marine snail and another study case is in Patagonia with hake fishery yeah so yeah I try to understand that kind of relationship but mostly part of my also goal is because there over the time in academia or in ecological science we put a lot of emphasis and how nature contribute to the to the people but Also, it's important to see how people have some positive or contribution or benefit to the nature and the environment we are
0: around. So
1: I think it's important.
0: Yeah, and that's at the core of this concept called reciprocity, right? Right, right.
1: So this is one of
0: the important things to navigate in reciprocity.
1: When I started to thinking about that, the, the main reason was I feel like an ecology over the last t- 20, 30 years, there are a lot of emphasis about the economics perspective of our relationship and also the ecological perspective from nature to people. I feel like uh, we need to explore another dimension first. Though also, we re- I recognize is important the cultural and social aspect also, the ethical aspect of our relationship with nature. Also, I like re- reciprocity because it's framing like a, a circle. So it's all the time we need to change our referring point about our relationships in general.
0: Yeah, and it's something that evolves over time as our understanding evolves, as you get more information. So what I'm wondering is, how did you find this concept of reciprocity both in the hake fisheries and with the abalone fisheries. Can you tell us about your experiences? It could be great to talk about that kind of
1: experience. First, when we think in an abalone, I went to Haida Wai to learn and to interview Haida elders who gather and harvest abalone before the fishing boom, the commercial fishing boom, it started in 1975 until 1990, so uh, almost in 50 years, commercial fishers up upside to Hawaii come to clean almost the coast with abalone. The overfishing was crazy and have a very bad impact for the food security in Hawaii. But elders. From the Haida Nation, they live with abalone in different relationship for millennia. This impact also impact their relationship. So, try we one of or my goal uh, is to learn first of all from them how they care the abalone population before the fishing boom. It's, it's maybe that is one of the first rule. Is like a, if you are going to harvest for food. Don't take too much if you don't need. It's a simple, but it's a super strong message about what is going on with our uh, relationship and makes sense in terms of the consumption today. <laughs> this is one of the first. second is uh, people try to improve abundance over the time. We try to put abalone in another places. Also, for example, Avaloni was part of the potlatches which is the indigenous ceremony and in the Central Coast, uh, part of the artwork. So there are different connections. This is one of the topic in way. The another if we are thinking in a Vietnamese spherical point of view, we imagine you go to Patagonia, South America, the other side of the, the world. Over there, in South America we say for small-scale fishery, we in, in general, we, we prefer to say artisanal fishers or artisanal fishery, because people use a small bowl. The fisher are from different backgrounds, but in general are people from indigenous community, mestizo, like me. This is part of my, I recognize myself like a mestizo person. Different background, but the, mostly is the people have... Interesting relationship with seabird. Austral Ocean, one of the important seabirds are albatrosses and petrels. So there are a big seabird and beautiful seabird. I started to navigate with them for maybe the last ten years. I realized there are different connections. From the perception of the fisher seabird like a uh, albatrosses could be a pet, but also the fisher recognize the albatross or petrel help to clean the ocean. And the reason is because, for example, when fisher fish a hake, the fish, so they clean the fish, so they throw the offal, uh, the guts, the liver, the gonads, to the ocean, and they realize, oh yeah, the the seabirds are eaten. But the scientific question also appeared in my case when I started to see this kind of relationship because the seaver, and particularly albatrosses, who are the big, the biggest one, they don't eat every all the kind of offal. So they are sometimes they are picky. They prefer to eat liver. They are, they are super focused to eat this kind of uh, uh, items. And the fish recognise that they oh they they don't like everything. So <laughs> for me also, the second question is: this kind of relationship has been for millennia as well. Yeah. F- humans people are in the ocean, they fish, they clean the fish. For a long time ago, I am not try to to say this is a new ecological interaction. At the end of the day, fisher put food over the ocean, the seabird eat this, and the perception for the fisher is ah, they are cleaner, mm-hmm. and at the same time, the another perception is for from the fisher is seabird like albatrosses is like a bed. So there are different kind of relationships. This is two, but there are others.
0: Wow, that is incredible. So it sounds like you've had just amazing experiences while documenting these relationships, both in Haida Gwaii and in Patagonia. Was there a specific experience that you had that was surprising to you?
1: For me, the surprise sometimes more about the emotion of the people when they tell me about that, that kind of history. So I think for me, the surprise is how memories started to appear with nature, with simple questions. That kind of, for me, is like, a, oh my God, everybody have different histories, but depending on how you started to asking uh, the people. This is also important to me because this is a connection about what is going on with our memories for ourselves and the memory, for example, with my grandparent, my grandmother, what memories they have with the nature. So sometimes, like a, for me, this is a surprise. And then like a, when we ask something about memories with nature, also it's interesting because that kind of memory could be very close to us.
0: That is very true. And I think, again, that goes back to what you said about ecology, sustainability. There's the social aspect to it, too. A lot of times we focus on, oh, the science, you know, the ecosystem itself or just the economics. You know, how are we getting benefit from nature? But the social aspect, the memories, the emotions, how it plays out in society is also extremely important.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's very important because is part of the cultural background of the people, the identities, the history. That kind of social aspect is very important in terms of to create a narrative about what our identities and our connections. But for sure, I also is important the economic aspect and the ecological aspect. There are also a key element. For example, when I thinking in Hague The fisher are there because it's a work they live with from this fishery. And now this is the crisis. These both cases, the Hague and Patagonia and Avalonia and Haidawai are suffering in terms of the biocultural continuity of this kind of work because commercial fisheries, uh, the overfishing, maybe the neoliberal politics we live in in this aspect... So there are many factors we can talk about that. So, but the, my point is there are a lot of similarities between Patagonia and Haidawaya as well.
0: Definitely, and that's, I mean, part of your research is documenting that and documenting these experiences and these relationships, which is extremely important because a lot of times the perspectives that you're researching, the indigenous perspectives, get ignored or, you know, they're taken seriously or anything. And you're showing that they are just as serious; they are just as valid as all of the other perspectives that are coming up with Western science, with commercial fisheries, all of that. And they really need to be, you know, amplified. People need to pay attention to them because, like you said, they have been doing this for millennia.
1: I think that is the important part: the recognition, the our relationship with this these species. And another is a food it's a local food i remember uh elder here in in Haidawai. elder in in patagonia they say me the same thing we have to respect the food in this in this case the seafood we 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 have to respect the the species but when the species is cashing it's about it's about food Mm-hmm. We need to respect that, uh, that is one of the, another similarity of that. Sometimes we forgot the idea is the accessibility mm-hmm. of to eat food from the surrounding environment. Today, this is, is so challenged to thinking about what is the access from the communities, the local community, the indigenous community mm-hmm. to access about their food. And today, this is challenging. It's crazy, but it's because many of these kind of... For example, Hague, most of the Hague travel to Europe, to Japan, different places. So the access to eat this kind of local food is not easy for people who live there. I think this is one of the
0: changing we need to change. Yeah, definitely. And it is... know part of this idea of food sovereignty that people have access to the food that they are comfortable with that's culturally important to them and it's not taken away from them or they don't have control over it so it's really difficult you know today like you said a lot of our food is seen as a commodity but with understanding and recognizing and documenting these perspectives it can bring food sovereignty and decision-making and agency back to these communities.
1: I think you put a very important word in there to critique the current system. Today, we are thinking of food as a commodity. When we are thinking about the impact, how neoliberal policies change our relationship with local food. For example, when when we talk about neoliberal policies, The commodity needs to go out from different other markets. This is part of the... the Another is people who can fish seafood, they needed a license, an individual license. So it's it's like this is part of the neoliberal policy. Everything is individual or the privatization of the the food. It's complicated in terms of management. I feel like uh, if we are thinking... Privatization for fisheries is so difficult. The accessibility of the food, but also to work in the food. Well, this is one of the the issue when appeared the idea of privatization. Okay, in fisheries, individual transfers, license, which is private quote. So today, for indigenous communities, artisanal fishers, many in many places, this is one of the conflicts. The accessibility. The problem is. Governments sometimes they put a lot of boulder, big boulders, small boulder in order to to think about to resolve the problem but for long time we the, the technical worries bureaucracy.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for bringing awareness to this issue because I think it's not something that a lot of people usually think about who don't have direct a direct relationship with these communities or, you know, we just get our food in the grocery store. So hearing about communities who do rely on these fisheries and then the conflicts that they're having, it's very important to bring awareness. So I'm also wondering a little bit more about you. Is there a point in time when you remember that this is kind of what you wanted to research?
1: There are three factors. Yeah. I think the first is my relationship with my grandmother, for example because my grandmother also, she grew up between like a traditional family with traditional food, a lot of like a cultural rich aspect about seafood. So I learned many stories, traditional history about the sea with my grandmother. That implied reciprocity. And another important aspect to me was when I came here, yeah, I started to learn English. I still learning, <laughs> for sure. But I read a book from Apotami, uh, research an indigenous scholar. Yes, yeah, this book was very important uh, about to thinking and reciprocity from an indigenous perspective. E, the, the third point to me, uh, how was very close to the idea of this uh, to thinking and reciprocity is for a long time I was very interested in the the empathy. Between people and nature, because I have like when we have our connection with our pets, like a dog, a cat, emerge in some point could be a, a emotion, but at the same time could be relationship. When I say a relationship, in terms of ecology, in terms of the psychological perspective, other animals, not just humans, the empathy about a dog, the empathy about a forest. The empathy about a fish. So that is one uh, motivation for me to think in reciprocity.
0: I can see that that passion for those three things have carried you forward to today. (laughs) So that's really cool. And I'm also curious, can you tell us a little bit more what it was like growing up in Patagonia? Like the landscape, the food, the people, just a little bit. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Patagonia is a, a place. We is a common name for the last part of South America. Patagonia. I am from Chile, from the west side of Patagonia, where there are a lot of channels and rainforests. It also is the Andes mountain started to finish there, and the west side of the Andes mountain is rainforest. And then the another part is we say pampas or uh, that's why uh, this is, it's not the name about Patagonia, but uh, this side is from Argentina. So I grew up there uh, in the transition between rainforest and Pampas. Uh, my city is Punta Arenas. I grew up medium, low class family, work, work family. My grandmother in particular, she coming from an island. The name is Chilue. Uh, Most of the people are mestizos there, from Mapuche and other indigenous communities there. When I say, like, I grew up, the relationship with a lot of seafood.
0: It sounds very incredible. So, I mean, here... You know, a lot of us just think of Patagonia as a clothing store for, you know, outerwear or whatever, (laughs) but it's a real place and it sounds beautiful and a wonderful place to grow up.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Patagonia, this is very interesting because (laughs) most of the people recognize Patagonia as a a brand. It's it's a beautiful place with a lot of uh, issues as well. Like, uh, for example, I can say salmon farming is a huge issue in Patagonia. I, I think this is another similarity in BC as well. So, but Patagonia is a remote place, very important for, for my country, but also from, from South America and for the world, because many things are happening there.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing about your home. Did you face any challenges coming here from Patagonia to Canada, or did you face any challenges as you started your new graduate degree? The first
1: challenge, as an international researcher or PhD student, the first barrier is the language, for sure, because the most complicated part sometimes, you can tell your ideas, but how you express your idea with emotions, with different things, mm-hmm. is so complicated when English is not your first language. The another challenge part is... Maybe it's a cultural aspect in, in Chile or, or in South of Chile or in South America in general. The people are like, oh, okay, let's go. We can go for a drink. It's so easy to have a network of <laughs> friends, whatever. And here it's like a more,
0: it's possible for sure,
1: but it's, it takes more time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's, it's true. It's definitely difficult, I think, starting out here to make friends and find a good network of people. But I mean, here at UVic, I think we're pretty lucky compared to other places, maybe.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Here in in, in in Canada and particularly in BC specifically, it's easy because there are a lot of people who are open mind about what is your place or... I feel like uh, I am very welcoming uh, to be here.
0: Yeah, I agree. Everyone is has been really welcoming. So it's, it was very nice to move here and everybody seemed friendly.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, that was a very interesting part about BC.
0: Yeah,
1: that's so lucky to be here.
0: I'm also wondering a little bit more about what your day-to-day research looks like. So, of course, you have... Been to Heidiguy. You've conducted interviews with many indigenous people and many indigenous fishers. Outside of that, what does a normal day look like for you? The
1: reading of PhD student could be crazy in terms of like uh, how you you are the leader of your research. So yeah. that is uh, is good. Yeah, at the same time is dangerous because you need to <laughs> administrate to manage your timing. But if you ask me, me today, my day today is yeah. Uh, first of all, I I am still analyzing interviews. When I say interview, it's very interesting because you need to listen to the interview, to transcribe the interview, to code the interview. When I say code or coding, there are concepts. For example, when the Fisher explained like oh. This is one of the main issues: the policy, because uh, the policy affects us in terms of the accessibility. So, what is the coding of that? There could be a many discussion. Could be, for example, this is a neoliberal policy. Could be the code that is day to day to read, to thinking, and the coding process. For example, after I try to read papers. My goal is to try to finish in September my thesis. So my day-to-day is just analyzing and reading and writing, (laughs) which is a challenge.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a challenge for for a lot of us. (laughs) So it sounds extremely interesting. It's a little bit different what you're doing from research where we gather the data, the data becomes these numbers, and then we code them Using a, a coding program, that's like just doing a lot of fancy analysis and math and everything. But what you're doing is really looking into what people are saying and trying to unpack that, help understand and use that in order to make better decisions in the future. If that is,
1: This is another super interesting part to navigate between social An ecological science because part of my data also have an ecological point of view. about, For example, when I say seabird eat offal, so I try to quantify that kind of relationship. This is the normal ecological data every biology maybe try to get. But another is the histories, the narrative of the people. This is super interesting in terms like a, this is it's very important to have that kind of interview with the people like a, if you are the person who interview the people it's super important because you you remember what kind of emotion that person have that kind of what what happened that day with this interview sometimes I think social science also could be very like to put in a box. Also, this is sometimes, sometimes ecological and social researchers, they say, are different. But I am, I am thinking today, social researchers, sometimes that could be very like similar to ecological researchers. I feel like the most important part is to learn about the experience with the people and the experience with the species, the, the nature. So to think in the experiences rather than to the data. That is my point.
0: And that is a really good point, and we definitely need more of that in science. I think moving forward, because even though you know we have all of this data and everything, a lot of times we don't have the human, the social side. So hopefully, in the future, there can be more cross disciplinary research like what you're doing.
1: Yeah, this is important. In both situation, ecological and social researcher. Also, it's important the, the product, like uh, to produce a thesis, to, to finish uh, a scientific article is important, for sure. But also another aspect of this is communication. The science communication like uh, we are doing now is very important because at the same time to think in the trajectory of this. Not just the products, no how many papers do you have. This is important at some point. The important is how is the trajectory and how we can communicate our results in different kind of forms. For example, another day I was talking with a friend, how social science is communicating an education system in Canada? I don't sure because For example, my perspective from my background in Chile, most of the information is about ecological and biological knowledge. And when we talk about cultural and social aspect, the field all the time we receive in the schools is history with historians. But... Social science have different aspects. So I think in both countries, in Chile and in Canada, we need to improve the role of social ecological science into the school.
0: That is a great recommendation. And I also I definitely agree with you because a lot of times, you know, it's it's very separate when we're being taught in school. Making a connection between those two, as well as with science communication, can really take us forward into the future.
1: I am thinking myself uh, as a kid in the school, I learned about elephants in Africa, like a lot of bias about what happened in other places, and also some part of the knowledge, the nature or the biodiversity surround Patagonia. But I feel like uh, I didn't, in the school, I didn't learn too much about what conflicts, environmental and social conflict, I have surround me. Maybe I learn for sure that kind of aspect with my family, with the conversation, having different meals with my parents, with my grandmother. But I think we need to have that kind of conversation in the school as well.
0: For sure. And hopefully, yeah, in the future, we can... You know, put out products like this that are are helpful with the goal of creating more awareness so that people be able to you know tackle these problems as they as they come up. As we kind of wrap up, is there anything that you're excited about other than finishing your thesis?
1: To finish my thesis is the first things, but also I uh, another exciting part is the recognition about the trajectory. Like uh, this is exciting as well because. Behind me, there are uh, many people. Uh, it's exciting to think I am from a um, family who have a poor family, for example, but to come to another country to navigate with a lot of economic issues, this is uh, a lot of economic issue. I say, like, uh, it's exciting to thinking and the recognition of how many people support you in this trajectory of the PhD. This time in canada for me was also uh, i received a huge support for my mother my grandmother but many people here in canada it's funny because victoria is a city with a lot of elders so when my friend told me like i do you have another canadian friends they say mostly of my canadian friends are elders because the city have a lot of elders but i enjoy with them so again when you ask me like a uh, What is exciting? It's exciting to think in the trajectory, how many people support you in terms of like to create relationship, to create community.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. And I mean, I think it's great to recognize that, you know, as scientists, a lot of times, sometimes we feel alone in what we're doing, but we do have a community behind us. We do have people who support us and that makes all the difference
1: makes all the difference. You also from people like from South America, from who are mestizo, who are indigenous, who are black people, uh, different kind of background, different kind of economic issue. I think this is one of the things important. Science, to be a, a researcher 30 years ago, 40 years ago, mostly was about if the family had money, could be the result to could be a researcher or a doctor. I think now science is more open. could be in the future I would like to be more open. I think now in, the, in this time it's very open so many people could be a, a researcher. So I think that is a great opportunity for to have more social ecological researchers, from different background, from different narrative, with different critique different point views. So in order to increase the diversity of the conversation and the the, uh, and the discussion of what mean the role of social and ecological research in our community, in our countries, in our world. Yeah,
0: yeah and I think that's a great note to end on. We need more diversity in science. We need more diversity in social and ecological and economic research. And hopefully we'll be able to highlight these perspectives like you have in your research. So thank you once again for being here.
1: Thank you so much, Ashley.
0: Ocean Bites Out Loud is supported by CFUV 101.9 FM at the University of Victoria, and the Graduate School of Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island.